Hey, how's it going? My name is Jonathan. I am not one of the pastors here at Element. I assure you I'm qualified, or at least Aaron assures me I'm qualified. So, hey, um, I'm going to be speaking today about Nahum. We have the uh, handouts in the back with some questions that you can go over uh, with your family, with your GC. I encourage you to pick one of these up. If you are watching online, I got to tell you, it's so much better to be here in person. You definitely should do it. This is one of the best things. Come back. I would be here if I could be here all the time. So I don't want to waste a lot of time introducing myself. Uh, some of you remember me from when I used to serve here with you. Uh, some of you, if you're in the Space Force, know me professionally. Uh, but so we're not strangers. I want to give you the top three things you need to know before I start preaching today. So number one, I'm a former elder at a little congregation called Element Colorado Springs. Number two, Element Colorado Springs, or E-C-C-C-S, is just like you, but smaller, colder, with more C's in the name. Um, we're at a higher elevation, which means when we take uh, communion, the air is thinner, so we have a little bit more fun. Um, <laughs> we believe in worshiping God. We believe in biblical doctrine. We believe in community. And I personally believe that you can't have any one of those things without the other two. I'm the husband to Jennifer, father to Olivia, Holly, and Lauren. And I have to say them in that, in that order, or else you'll think I'm the father of NCIS actress Lauren Holly, which I am not. But other than that, all you need to know is I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. Amen. So with that, stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Nahum 1.15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace. Keep your vows, for never again will the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Let's pray. Father God, um, we desire to have beautiful feet for you, Lord. We want to bring good news. But to understand that good news, we, uh, we need to understand what your justice and your righteous judgment is all about, Lord. And we Thank you for the book of Nahum uh, that teaches just that concept. And I pray that you'll speak through me today and you'll prepare uh, everybody's hearts and minds to hear uh, this, this message. In your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So Nahum 1.15 is the only verse in this prophecy that makes it into the New Testament. It's quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 10 and with great effect. So don't get ahead of me. We'll circle back to that as uh, our White House press secretary always says. But at this point, I'll assume you all have read Nahum. Uh, see a lot of people avoiding eye contact now. <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. And I'm doing that because God's about to give the people of Nineveh a very hard time. But seriously, this book's a five-minute read. It's three chapters, 42 verses, and only one and a half of those verses could be considered uh, uplifting or encouraging. And you just heard one of them. <laughs> This prophecy is what's known as an oracle of doom. And I realize that sounds like a Dungeons and Dragons card, like I play the God card with plus five doom and intimidating shout. But it's basically a warning of destruction to come. And these types of prophecies typically have two parts, very simple, the list of charges and then what God's going to do about it. So it's got the list of charges of what God's going to do about it. Nahum is a book about wrath and judgment. And you will notice I was careful to separate those two concepts, wrath and judgment. You see, everyone's going to be judged by God. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as it is appointed for a man once to die, after that comes the judgment. So everybody's going to be judged, 
everyone's going to die. Sorry, science. You know, it's not Ricky Bobby. If your income's high enough, you might live 150, 200 years. No, everybody's going to die, and then something happens. We're going to be judged. So that's the first concept. But wrath is different from judgment because wrath is reserved for God's enemies. Did you hear what I said? Wrath is reserved for God's enemies. Nahum puts this concept of wrath being poured out on God's enemies on full display. Just like me, in this sermon today, um, I wanted to get through who I was, minimize the introduction. Nahum does the exact same thing. Uh, he's not a character in this na narrative, nor is he very important. He gives one line of introduction in verse 1. He says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. That's it. And then he tap dances off the stage. He gets right down to business. Verses 2 and 3, he says, the Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So if you remember anything, nothing else today, remember this. First, our two key concepts. God judges everyone, and wrath is reserved for his enemies. And second, while the book of Nahum predicts the judgment of Nineveh through the wrath of God, the real message of this book is that God is good. God is good. And he will do good to those who are called by his name. And that's very encouraging. The book of Nahum is one of these books in the Old Testament that makes people say foolish things like, the God of the Old Testament was all about wrath, and the God of the New Testament is all about God's love. Well, the statement completely misses the point of this prophecy, that God is in control, that God has a plan, and that plan is for the redemption of the world. And crucially, as loving as, as Christ's sacrifice was on the cross, the cross was as much about love as it was about wrath. Did you hear that? It was as much about love as it was about satisfying God's wrath. And I'll go one step further. I, I would say that the wrath displayed on the Assyrian people and the city of Nineveh isn't even worth comparing to the wrath that God poured out on Christ on the cross. So why was Nineveh the object of God's wrath? This question should make us uh, remember the key, a key component of God's wrath. And I'll say it again, God's wrath is reserved for his enemies. You'll remember that. God's wrath is reserved for his enemies. So why Nineveh, the capital of Syria, why was that place an enemy of God? Blessedly, the Bible gives us a wealth of information on this topic. So starting in Genesis 10, the city of Nineveh, the ancient, the ancient city in Assyria, was founded along the banks of the Tigris River in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means between the rivers, right? The Fertile Crescent, where all those rivers flow in the Middle East. So those were the two rivers. You've got uh, the Tigris and, Euph and Euphrates, and those are two of the rivers of Eden, the other two being the Gihon and the Pishon. In a sense, uh, this city, the settling in this city, uh, which came after the flood of Noah, was a sort of a rebirth um, it was founded by Noah's great-grandson uh, uh, great grandson through his son, Ham, a man named Nimrod. Now, I know Nimrod has gotten a pejorative connotation in the English language, but the Bible really describes Nimrod as the first mighty man after the flood, and indeed he was. He founded Nineveh, and he founded Babylon, two of the greatest societies of the ancient world. 
Not many of the Nimrods that I work with have that record of success. <laughs> so Nineveh is located in um, what is now the Nineveh province of northern Iraq. That's where the city of Mosul is. Uh, it's home to the Kurdish people, and it's very much, even to this day, a place of political unrest. It makes the headlines routinely. As we're moving our troops out of, out of that place, that's where we're moving them from, the city of Mosul in northern Iraq. Um, but a biblical curiosity, and I think it's worth mentioning, Noah's son Ham is the son that Noah cursed, right, after the vineyard incident in Genesis chapter 9. The line of Ham, in many ways, to this day, has been a curse to Israel, and has been throughout the centuries. The inhabitants of that region still don't have very positive relations, even with the modern state of Israel. Now, compare that curse of Ham to the narrative of Nahum. Nahum's name means comfort in Hebrew. This comparison becomes even more valuable, because uh, on the one hand, you have Nineveh under the wrath of God, and on the other hand, you have Judah, whom God is comforting. And don't miss this. He is comforting Judah by judging Nineveh. He's comforting Judah by judging Nineveh. Verse 7 through 8 makes this juxtaposition way better than I just did. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This makes me ask, who are those who take refuge in God, and who are God's enemies? So let's start with his enemies. Uh, there's a practical way to answer this question, who are God's enemies? Okay, step one, go to your bathroom and retrieve a mirror. Okay, don't get ahead of me. It could be a big mirror or a small mirror. Step two, look into that mirror. There you will see a person who is now, or has been in the past, an enemy of God. Jesus teaches us on the Sermon on the Mount that every sinful action, choice, or thought we have puts us at odds with God, and in a very real sense, makes us his enemy. The Sermon on the Mount makes it, desperate, makes it clear the desperate depravity of our human condition. We are sinful through and through. Being an enemy of God is terrifying, and it's a bleak and hopeless state. But I will tell you what, there is hope. There is hope. The hope is found in God's comfort because we serve a God who invites his enemies into his comfort and his love. We serve a God who invites his enemies and exclusively his enemies because we were all once enemies of God into his comfort and into his love. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says it this way. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. By the death of his son, much more will we now, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That is an amazing promise. And a big thanks to the Apostle Paul. In three concise verses, he answers um, you know, this, this question. It's through the blood of Christ that we have been reconciled to him. Though we were enemies, but we were saved by his life. We are no longer under wrath because of that. And that is an amazing thing. That's why Nahum is a message of hope and not just wrath. Because this book is about God and his long-suffering goodness, and how he doesn't allow sin to consume and torment his people forever. Amen? 
Here's the Bible reading principle of the day. The Bible is about God. I know that seems obvious, but it's about God. It's not about us. He is found on every page. The story is about what he has done and is doing. And you're going to be frustrated if you read the Bible and you lose sight that God is 100% just and 100% the justifier. He is good. He is 100% good. Even if we don't understand his long-suffering plan or the big picture or the long game, right? We don't understand something like how he could wipe out the city of Nineveh. But God is the subject, not us. And the cross is the central theme. God's redemption of the whole creation is the end of the story and where it's going. And in that, there is great hope. God is good. So the story of uh, Nineveh and the, and the Assyrians is a bloody conquest narrative of subjugation, rebellion against God, and idolatry. Sound familiar? Anybody familiar with that? If Romans 5 were two sides of a coin, um, the book of Jonah would be one side where God... Uh, shows his grace. God sent uh, Nineveh, a prophet, to call these people to repentance. And amazingly, what do they do? They repent, much to the prophet's frustration, which is a a completely different sermon right there. So they repent. Uh, But uh, I I just want to put out a quick aside about Jonah and Nahum, these two sides of a coin. They show how early in God's redemptive plan that he was thinking about us. Yeah, I know, I know Israel is the, is the central kind of people of the Bible and drives the narrative forward, but, but God was thinking about us as well, a rebellious Gentile nation, very, very early on in his plan. You know how early? Always. He was always thinking about us from the beginning, from eternity. And, and this story that we see, especially in Jonah and then coming into Nahum, in a way foreshadows what we find very, very clearly spelled out in Romans 11, where it talks about the ingrafting of this rebellious people into God's people, into God's family. Now, unlike Jonah, in the book of, in the book of Nahum, Nineveh is not given another chance to repent. repent. <laughs> in fact, there's no indication Nahum even goes to Nineveh. How's that for a prophecy against you? We didn't even know it was going to come. God essentially blindsided them, and not the way Sandra Bullock did to that Michael Orr guy. I slept through the movie. That might not be the plot. But did he blindside them? Did he blindside them? Remember, Nahum is a prophecy that follows Jonah by probably a century. It's probably been 100 years since these people were given the opportunity to repent. Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. A hundred years. You can agree that that's pretty slow to anger. That's a slow burn. Nineveh and all of Assyria had well over a century to honor God, following this period of repentance uh, after Jonah's own prophecy of doom. But what did they choose? They choose to go back to business as usual. And who does that sound like? Well, it sounds like us, right? We live happily under God's grace for a season, then sin gets the better of us, and then we presume upon God's grace. We presume upon God's grace. So was it fair of God to sucker punch Nineveh? If you're going to do it, in my experience, that's the most effective way. Uh, don't, it, it, easier to punch somebody if they don't see it coming. But God is the sovereign God of the universe. He's under no compulsion to tell any of us what he's doing. He doesn't have to reveal his plans, yet he does. In Amos, he promises that he will reveal his plans to his prophets. Amos 3.7 says, The Lord does nothing 
without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So Nahum, a man of understanding, God revealed this prophecy. It's not just about God's wrath on a rebellious people, though it is most certainly that, but this is a, a prophecy about God's grace to all mankind and his rejection of the ultimate enemy, sin and death. I think the story of Nineveh is the story of so many people who have squandered God's grace. When they were given the opportunity to truly change their hearts, they just temporarily changed their behavior, but never truly trusted the one who could save them. It's easy to spot an enemy of God. All we have to do is look in the mirror. But to find a friend of God, that's when we need to each examine our own hearts and see if it's covered by the blood of Jesus or not. I know this is getting pretty heavy, which uh, was unavoidable to some extent. Some extent, you know. Thanks, Aaron, for for the the Nineveh prophecy. But when I when I would first start preaching, um, and Aaron gave me the first opportunity to do this, I would be very long-winded. I know some things don't change, but he would tell me. He said, "It's okay to be funny." He said, "It's okay to be funny." And then my mom, in the afternoon after the sermon, would say, "Stop trying to be funny." So I'm not going to tell you about the three guys who walked into a bar in Nineveh. You're not missing anything. They all died. (laughs) But why did God single out Assyria to be judged by wrath? And this prophecy is chock full of the language of wrath. Nahum 2.13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I'll burn your chariots in smoke. And sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. That's good wrath talk right there, right? I'm going to destroy you and your army, and nobody's going to be there to hear your screams. Unless there be any doubt about who's doing this. Hello, Margaret. It's me, God. God is doing it, and he's telling them, and he's being very clear. But... By the time Nahum's prophecy is fulfilled, a hundred years after this is written, the Assyrians are so utterly destroyed, they aren't even recognizable among the nations. Any reference to Nineveh today, geographically, is is completely an invention of the modern era. It was called uh, the Mosul province up until 1976. But why the Assyrians? Why Nineveh? We know they were violent. We know they were idolaters. We know they, offered, they were offered repentance, and they turned from it. That doesn't really narrow down the list of offending peoples, though, does it? If it were the modern day, we would probably make the list. So why not more wrath for more people, right? Equal opportunity wrath. I believe the answer lies in the fact that the Bible is focused on God and not focused on man. So there's a very revealing vignette that talks about this relationship between uh, the Assyrians in Israel, Assyrians in Judah, and it's found in 2 Chronicles 32, and then again it's retold in 2 Kings 18. This is where the king of Assyria at the time, Sennacherib, whose name literally is, is paying homage to his pagan god, who ironically is named Sin. I know it meant something different in their language. Uh, but he sends the chief princes, the Rabshakeh, which sounds like a 90s rap group, to basically judge and and take over uh, Judah, right? They send him to Judah. We're going to take you over just like we took over Israel. We're going to take you into bondage. So in the days leading up to this siege of Jerusalem, Sennacherib does what all great Bond villains do, and he reveals his entire plan to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, right before the battle. 
and he has the Rabshakeh openly mock God and mock Hezekiah for worshiping God and tearing down the pagan idols. He, he misunderstood that those weren't gods. And he said, well, see, you tore down your, your images of God. How can you expect to presume on God's grace? Well, he was clearly mistaken. Then he goes on to taunt God. He taunts Hezekiah into a fight. And in doing so, he reveals the whole heart of the king of Assyria and the root of the problem. Assyria, though equally sinful to many of their neighbors, Assyria set themselves up in opposition to God's plan of salvation. They set themselves up in opposition to God's plan of salvation. Galatians 6, 7 puts it this way. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. The story ends with Hezekiah praying and God acting. Hezekiah didn't have to lift a sword. He didn't have to send one man into battle. The angel of the Lord stole the breath of every person on the opposing army's battlefield. There's a poem written about this, in, uh, this passage of scripture, called The Destruction of Sennacherib. It was written by English poet George Gordon, AKA Lord Byron. And you guys are probably gonna go home and read your Lord Byron this afternoon, so you've, you're familiar with this. It starts with this line. The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold. The image is of this wild beast, this ravenous wolf descending on a defenseless flock of sheep to consume them. Now the rest of the poem, which is very interesting, you should read it, it's called The Destruction of Sennacherib, tells this biblical narrative in, in, in poetry about preying on God's people and opposing God and how God doesn't stand for either one of those things. Now, I believe the Assyrian and Nineveh received God's wrath because number one, they squandered the salvation that he freely offered. And in doing so, they set themselves up in opposition to his purpose, which was to bring salvation to the entire world through the kingdom of Judah. But in many times and in many ways, our lives are exactly like that. We become citizens of Nineveh, opposing God to his face. Beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who bring the good news. Good news to who? This was not good news to the Assyrians. Nahum never even left his own country. God would be his messenger. God would be his own messenger, and his message was wrath. Wrath reserved for the enemies of God. So these beautiful feet must have been walking up another mountain. Any of you ever, uh, in, your, in your quiet time, in your Bible reading time, enjoy reading a psalm or two? Psalm 120 through 133 are referred to by a curious name. They're called Songs of Ascent. It's curious unless you understand the geography of Israel. In the east, Israel is bordered by the Jordan River, which flows from the south, uh, from Syria and Mount Hermon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and then on from south from the Sea of Galilee to the lowest point on earth, called the Dead Sea. That's where a little um, oasis of En Gedi is, is located. Now, if you're traveling from En Gedi uh, to Jerusalem, uh, to, to kind of the figuratively highest point in the Judean hills, Mount Moriah, atop which set the Temple Mount, you would be ascending. Now, the writers of these Psalms had make, making this journey many, many times, would sing these songs of worship as they traveled. And so would Jewish pilgrims going up uh, for their annual festivals and feasts in Jerusalem. They'd sing the songs 
of ascent. And apropos to this prophecy is Psalm 121, a song of ascent. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Beautiful on the mountains are the feet who, of him who bring the good news. So the mountain that Nahum wasn't talking about, it wasn't in Nineveh. It was in Judah. And the good news was not the wrath of God to Nineveh, but it was that all of us could be spared by God, of God's wrath by the man Christ Jesus. Paul uses the single verse in Nahum to talk to an audience in Rome hundreds of years later. Now, they might be a, be, have been familiar uh, as a fact of history uh, what happened to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were long gone by the time Romans was written. But why this isolated verse to the church in Rome? Because Rome, just like Jerusalem and Judah, just like Santa Maria in California, needs to be comforted by God so it won't be judged by God. Romans uh, is essentially Paul's systematic theology, his great treatise um, that all men, and not just Jews, can be saved by God. Romans 10, 11 through 13 says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Did you hear that? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, to include his enemies. That is what you call good news. It's the kind of good news that might make you say about the person who brought it, they've got beautiful feet. But here's the thing. Nahum brought it to the people of Judah. I just brought it to you. Who are you going to bring it to? Who are you going to bring it to? When you reread Romans today, and or 10, Romans 10, you don't have to read the whole thing. Reread Romans 10. I know you're going to do it. You're going to see a very, very important warning that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, right? Didn't say reading, it said hearing. That means somebody has to speak it, okay? And the people don't hear unless we speak it. Nahum ends his book with this question. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? And that's the question he's asking to Nahum, or to, to Nineveh. Who has, who has not been affected by your unceasing evil? When you look in the mirror, when I look in the mirror, I gotta admit, that's a question I ask myself routinely. Sometimes I walk in those shoes. We're all deserving of God, God's judgment because we've all become enemies of God. But we serve a God who gladly comforts his enemies. We serve a God who freely offers his enemies a choice. Take the wrath as just punishment for your sins or place your trust in me who poured out my wrath on my own son on your behalf. Now, if you heard that word and you believe, Jesus tells us that you will not be judged, but you've passed from death to life. You see, justice means receiving the reward or due penalty due under the law. But here's the thing. The blood of Jesus didn't just tip the scales of justice in your favor. It completely erased your criminal record. Hebrews 8.12 says, God does not even remember your sins. Which sins? The sins you committed before you were saved? Or the ones you're going to commit this afternoon? All of them. 
He doesn't even remember them. That is true comfort. You still await judgment. All men are appointed once to die and then judgment. But if that describes you, you're not awaiting judgment for your sins and the wrath that follows. You're awaiting judgment for reward by God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us that. So the only question that remains is, are we going to be a people who willingly accept comfort while offering other people God's wrath? Or will Jesus tell us that we have beautiful feet someday? So I'm going to call up the band. I know that uh, I didn't really leave you uh, with something you can go out and joyfully take your neighbors. Hey, guess what? You're under the wrath of God, and that's good news for you. But I think the way to understand this is to understand the God of justice and why he can be the God of justice. So Isaiah 55 teaches us that God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our, our thoughts. And it gives us a magnitude of that. It says, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways, and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. Do I need to go over there? <laughs> Think about the heavens for a second. I mean, if, if you wanted to uh, have an example of something that was distant, the heavens are that thing. Not only are the heavens, outer space, the biggest thing that there is, it's forever expanding. In 1977, we launched a satellite called Voyager 1. It's, it's where uh, Star Trek got, stole the name for their Star Trek Voyager. Well, Voyager 1 is still on its mission to explore interstellar space. It's launched 43 years ago. It's traveling at about 34,000 miles per hour. It is still in our solar system. And it's going to die before it makes it out of our solar system. Space is huge. And God's, God's justice and God's mind and being are that big. But as big as he is, that doesn't fully explain how wrath can be a good thing. Psalm 103 does that, using the exact same comparison. How does God love those who are called by his name? He loves them as far as the heavens are above the earth. That is true comfort. And that's the comfort that he offers to his enemies. And that's the hope that I hope you can take to people today and have beautiful feet just the way Nahum did, just the way Paul did, and the way I hope to have when I stand before Jesus someday. Let's pray. Father God, you are amazing, you are holy. Your wrath, um, though it is terrifying and awful and, and all men who have not bowed the knee to you face it, Lord, is also a sort of source of great comfort for us, Lord, because you will not let your people who are called by your name endure in sin, Lord, but you promise to restore everything. So while we, are, we tremble and we are humbled, in the face of your, your, your majesty and the terror that is your wrath, Lord. Um, we hope um, that a multitude upon a multitude of people will get to experience your grace, Lord, and make us a people who have beautiful feet to take that grace to them. In your holy name, Jesus. Amen.